Luke chapter 8 will be, as Jeff read, in verses 40 through 56 this morning. Sadly, we are all too familiar with abuses of authority. For some of you, it is the abuse of parental authority, someone who was meant to care and love and protect you, abuse that authority, and sinned against you in grievous ways. For others, it could be a boss who demanded too much, who manipulated to serve his own agenda and harmed you in some way. Perhaps some of you have had um, bad experiences in churches where elders or pastors have, have hurt you. All of us certainly live underneath secular government that oftentimes abuses power, steps outside of its God-ordained roles. And so the world's solution then to this is to, to seek to undermine authority, to attack authority, and to inherently distrust anyone in a position of authority. In fact, we're discipled by our world that the more authority a person has, the more we should distrust them. Now, the point is not how we ought to respond to authority, though I think our first inclination ought to be to seek to honor authority where we can and so far as we are able but if we sense this, this pull in our own heart that the more authority somebody has, the less they can be trusted, then perhaps there's something in our heart that wants to resist the authority of Christ. It wants to buck up against the authority of Jesus. Uh, maybe we want to assume that the one who has all control cannot be trusted. In fact, if you say, no, that's not me, every time we sin, we are saying, I'm trusting myself above the authoritative Christ and His Word. But we see then in this passage, we see in Christ, in His incarnation, that He has laid aside the glories of heaven. He has invaded creation, and He has come wielding His authority, and His authority is good, and He uses it for the good of others. We've been in this whole section that's highlighting, again, the authority of Christ. He calmed the storm with His Word. He cast out a legion of demons by giving them permission. And this morning, He heals a woman of a terrible, debilitating disease, and He brings a dead girl back to life. The whole section is about authority. This morning, we get another great illustration of Christ wielding His authority for the good of others, but not just the good of random people, but for the desperate and for the hopeless. The desperate and the hopeless find their deliverance in Christ. and we so, so we see in that first uh, section there that Jesus wields His authority by dealing gently with the desperate. I know Jeff just read... This whole passage, I want to read verses 40 through 48 as we think through that section together first. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. 
She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So Jesus returns to Galilee. In his return, he finds a great crowd waiting for him. In the book of Luke, you just see this, this crowd is a constant uh, theme that returns. Uh, as, in fact, as he ministers and he teaches and he heals and he does these miracles, the crowd seems to be growing larger and larger. There's, there's a lot of interest around Jesus at this point in his public ministry. There's probably many on the shore that day hoping that Jesus might heal them, including this lady that we run into here. Out of this crowd, Luke then highlights a couple people for us. And what's interesting about this narrative is how these two stories sort of come together and form one unit. We've gotten used to this sort of flow in Luke where it's like this happened and then this happened and then this happened. It's not very often that you have this happened and while this was happening, this happened and then this happened all in one unit. So it's an interesting Story. It's an interesting narrative. We get a two-for-one deal here, two miracles, one passage. And the first man we're introduced to is a man named Jairus. And Jairus will quickly sort of end up in the background of the story for a few moments as Jesus interacts with someone else. We know of Jairus. He is a ruler in the synagogue. This would have, as religious and, and civil life for the Jews sort of intertwined, this would have made him a leader, not only religiously, but most likely a leader civilly, a leader in the community. He would have been esteemed by the city. And so we're a little bit surprised then, as many of the religious Jewish leaders, you know, particularly the Pharisees and the, the scribes, but, but some among the synagogues have already rejected Jesus. So we're left asking them, what would lead this prominent man in the city, prominent man in the synagogue, to approach Jesus? Well, the answer is there in the text. Jairus has a 12-year-old, his only daughter, who is dying. He's experiencing extreme helplessness, distress, and despair as he has to sit by and watch his daughter dying. And it's his only daughter. And Luke, in fact, likes to highlight if it's an only son or an only daughter. We saw it back with the widow uh, in Nain. It was her only son that died. In chapter 9, Luke will point that out again. This is an only child. And so pointing this out heightens the intensity of the grief in this moment. This man is going to lose his only daughter. The second person that we meet is, is a woman who has been suffering the indignity of disease for over a decade. Now Luke, it says over in the book of Colossians, was a physician. 
So it must have pained Luke as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write down that she'd spent all her money on doctor bills and no one could heal this lady. With all of our modern technology, we barely know, we can barely grasp what it is to suffer with the same disease for 12 years. The doctors that we have access to are so incredible that if we go to the doctor and we don't get an answer that day, we say, what, what is going on here? What's, what's wrong with this scenario? She has been suffering. She has spent all of her money on physicians and doctors, yet there's no cure or there's no treatment. So she's impoverished financially as she sought every single uh, treatment she could find. And if you read about how this was treated, it would have been embarrassing. It, it would have been awful for her to go through this. She's impoverished financially. But the nature of her ailment, it's a discharge. It would have caused her additional suffering. She has a discharge of blood, which would have made her in Israel ceremonially unclean. So we've talked a little bit about this with the leper when Jesus said, be clean, things like leprosy, touching a dead body, or a bodily discharge would make a person unclean according to the Old Testament law. Now one of the purposes, not the main purpose, not even close, but one of the purposes was a practical purpose. You can't have leprosy and stay among the people or else everyone gets leprosy. You can't have a discharge. It might be caused by something that could spread to someone else. And so you have to be isolated. So when Israel was in the wilderness then, before they enter into the land, think Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it meant if you were unclean, you had to go outside the camp. You couldn't be around the gathered congregation. And we'll see in a minute, you couldn't be in the presence of the Lord. But for this lady, in the time of Christ, it would, have meant, it would have meant isolation from others. She would have been excluded from going to the temple. She would have been excluded from her local synagogue. She couldn't be touched lest the person that touched her become unclean. She couldn't touch others lest they become unclean. For 12 years, she suffered this discharge. Physical suffering, financial suffering, and now social suffering as she is isolated. So as you think about these two people that Luke introduces to us right off the bat, in many ways they're quite different. In many ways the differences are striking. One is involved, one is excluded. One is likely well off as a leader in the synagogue in the city. One is poor as she has spent all of her money on doctor bills. One is connected socially, one is isolated, one is received, one is rejected. So there's lots of differences between these two people that Jesus is going to both work for, but Luke highlights how there is a, a similarity. As these stories sort of, sort of interconnect and as they overlap one another, they intersect one another, we see that this lady has been suffering for the exact same amount of time that this young lady has been alive. One has had 12 years of life, this daughter that's, that's dying. One has had 12 years of misery. But most of all, the thing that connects these two people is their sense of desperation that leads them to fall before Christ because everything else has failed. Everything else has let them down to this point. 
And so Jesus, as Jairus says, I need you to come and heal my only daughter. She's dying, and, and the text says, Jesus is going then. As he's going, as a lar- this large crowd then presses in on Jesus. And this word pressed in or pressed around, it's the same word that, that Jesus used in his parable of the four soils for the, the thorns that choke out the seed. I mean, this crowd is crushing in a sense. This is quite a crowd that Jesus is then trying to make his way through. There's people bumping him on all sides. They are literally pressing in on him. For some of you, this is your worst nightmare, a crowd like that. This lady, though, uses the cover of the crowd, pushes her way, makes her way through the crowd, and her faith is expressed in that she believes if she can just get to Jesus. If she can just get to Christ and touch the, even just the fringe of his garment, everything will be made well again. And so after years of agony, years of embarrassment, years of uncleanness, Jesus is here and she goes and she will find Christ. And she reaches out, she makes her way to him, she touches the fringe of his garment and immediately which is how we see Jesus healing people in the New Testament. And the apostles, immediately the discharge ceases. And again, we see with this theme of the authority of Christ that Jesus does what others cannot do. The disciples could not calm the storm, yet Jesus hushed it with a word. The city could not contain the demon. They sought to tie him up. He broke the chains and ran off into the desert. Jesus delivered him with permission. The doctors couldn't heal this woman, but Jesus healed her simply by this lady reaching out and taking hold of his garment. Jesus, as we know and have we seen, has the power to immediately reverse that which caused this woman all of this suffering for these 12 years. And we see that he has the authority then to reverse her uncleanness, you might say. Her touch should have made Jesus unclean, but that's not what happened. She becomes clean. You see, part of, this, part of these laws of uncleanness was that uncleanness was contagious. You can read all about it in Leviticus 15 with how specific it, it gets there if If a a woman like this woman in our passage, if she lied down on a bed, if she's unclean, if she lies down on the bed, the bed is unclean. If she sits in a chair, and this would be true of a man who has a discharge as well, if he sits in a chair, the chair became defiled, and anyone who touched the chair becomes unclean. If you are talking and you spit on someone and and that spit lands on them, they become unclean. This this uncleanness, it's, it's contagious. Well, why is that? What is God up to? Well, the second purpose of these laws of uncleanness was to teach people about the holy character and nature of God and therefore the defilement, the uncleanness of man. Again, consider Israel in the wilderness. They've built this tabernacle and God is dwelling among His people in the midst of the tabernacle. And if you're going to dwell in the midst of God's presence, you must be clean. Anyone who's unclean must go outside the camp. You must isolate yourself away from the congregation of Israel, but more importantly, away from the presence of the Lord. That's the way God speaks about this in Numbers chapter 5. 
the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or who has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside of the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. So the laws of uncleanness point to this distinction between God's holiness and man's defilement. And the laws of uncleanness were a way of teaching the impossibility of ourselves remaining untainted, unstained, undefiled by the world, or by, by sin even. God cannot dwell in the midst of this defilement. It's impossible not to be touched by this defilement. And all of this was meant to picture a moral defilement, a, a sinful defilement. When the Pharisees attack Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands while they eat, Jesus said it's not what goes into the body that defiles a person, it's what comes out, or it's not what goes into the mouth, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. It's sinful words that, that flow from a sinful heart that defile a person. It's not eating the wrong way, it's sinning against God in the way that we speak. And any person then who is defiled cannot be in God's presence. In fact, if you get to the end of the, uh, near the end of the book of Revelation, what's the distinction that is made? Who is in the presence of God? He will dwell again with God's people. Who is outside? Revelation 21, 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see here, Jesus has the authority, yes, to speak and to heal a disease, but he has come with the authority to cleanse us from even our greater defilement, which is the defilement of sin. In fact, the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus being killed outside the gate. He went outside the camp to die for those who are separated from the presence of God, so that we might be brought near to God through the blood of Christ. But we're, we're learning, we're seeing in Luke, that it's, it's the desperate then, it's, it's the hopeless, it's the ones who see this defilement, who see their own sin, who come and throw themselves at Jesus' mercy. It's those who recognize their condition that are willing to look to Christ to be cleansed, to be purified, to be forgiven of their sin through the sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Christ. In verse 45, then, Jesus brings attention to this act. As this lady comes before Christ, he asks, who was it that touched me? Now, given what we know about Christ, given what we've seen Christ be able to do in terms of you know, knowing Simon the Pharisee's thoughts as he was thinking them, we, we, we will conclude that this is not Jesus lacking information. Rather, I think Jesus is intending to draw attention to what just happened, and by way of that, he's going to highlight the necessity of faith, the necessity of belief. As Jesus, this 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 figure that the crowd probably doesn't, even, doesn't completely understand. Not probably, they don't. Um, as he says, who touched me? Naturally, everyone in the crowd denies having touched Jesus. 
But everyone, you know, they're bumping into Christ, they're pressing into him. And I find this sort of funny that everyone looks around and says, oh, no, was it, did you bump into Jesus? Uh, it wasn't me. It must have been you. And naturally, here, here's Peter. Peter speaks up as is kind of his go-to. He has a propensity to do this. You know, and, and he makes a decent point that in a crowd like this, Jesus, I mean, are you really wondering, like, who, who touched you? There's lots of people who have touched you, Jesus. But again, Jesus isn't lacking information. He's getting at a point. He has a specific person in mind. In verse 46, it says he perceived that power went out from him. Some have taken this, I think, to mean things that it doesn't mean and it shouldn't mean. Some people think about Jesus as power and authority like a battery. He got a little bit drained there and he sort of felt that he was lacking power in this moment. He sort of got depleted of some of his divine authority. But we've seen that, that Jesus is more than, more than a prophet. That he's more than just a vessel that, that God works through. He is one with the Father. He possesses the same nature and essence as the Father. And therefore, he possesses unique power and authority as the Son of God, God in the flesh. His authority is an ever-present authority that doesn't wax or wane. In his humanity, Jesus could grow tired. We saw him sleeping on the boat. But in his divinity, his authority doesn't go up and down. His power does not go up and down. So we see that he is aware that this woman has been healed through his power. And the woman then, and another reason we would probably say that Jesus isn't lacking information, the text says when she realizes she was not hidden. She knew he knew. And so now she must speak. She saw that she was not hidden, and she quickly learns that Jesus desires for her to profess publicly what had happened to her. So the fearful, trembling, unclean person who had just been made clean comes and falls before Christ. The one who desired to remain um, inconspicuous now becomes quite conspicuous. becomes uh, very evident to the people. The one who sought to sneak in and sneak out without really bothering Jesus now finds all eyes on her. And she finds herself then in fear. Right? She, the, the text says trembling. It says she's fearful, declaring in the presence of the crowd all that Jesus has done for her. And perhaps we can take some encouragement from this text to be ready to confess all that Christ has done for us, even in moments that might cause us great trembling. Men, I think sometimes it's scary to take up the task of leading and discipling your family. Sometimes it's, it's hardest for us to seek to lead those who know us the best. We're afraid of our, we're aware of our own sin. And our family's aware of our own sin, so who am I to lead? Well, we ought to take up this um, courage to confess all that Christ has done for us, even to our families, and seek to lead them well. Maybe you have a lost family member, and, and you'd rather share Christ with, with anybody else but mom or dad or your brother and your sister. Well, we can take courage, and even in Fear, confess all that Christ has done for us. We can take heart from this lady who confessed before the crowd. Now granted, I don't think she's as afraid of the crowd as she is of Jesus. 
But still, she sought to remain in hiding. Yet here she finds herself confessing Christ publicly. And then notice as well that Jesus, the one who speaks and acts with all authority, notice the way he speaks to this dear lady. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Daughter, there's a, a familial term. It's an affectionate and a tender way for Jesus to describe this lady who has been suffering and in isolation for all these years. The one who sought to remain hidden now is called by daughter. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And some of us looking at this lady, we may want to say, what, what faith? What faith are you talking about? She was scared to death. She wasn't even supposed to be in this crowd. She shouldn't have been touching other people since she was unclean. She kept quiet. She was likely one of the ones that denied that she even touched Jesus. She might have even misunderstood Jesus, thinking she has to touch him to be healed, even though we've seen Jesus doesn't have to touch you to be healed. He can heal you from a distance. What faith? This lady looks like she has weak faith. Well, here's the point. It's, it's not the strength of her faith that saved her. It's the object of her faith that saved her. In all of her weakness, in all of her fears, she was confident that Christ could help her, so she went to Christ. She went to Him. And if we're honest, this is, this is the way most of us came to Christ. We didn't know everything we needed to know about Christ. We couldn't, we couldn't have argued for the doctrine of the Trinity. We didn't have it all figured out. We knew this. I'm a desperate sinner. I am defiled before God. I lack the righteousness I need to stand in God's presence. And you came to Christ because you heard somebody say, He saves people just like you. I can go to Him and find eternal life. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't know Christ, you can come to Christ. And He will cleanse you of all your sin, not based on your, your ability to earn his own love and his righteousness but based on the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in your place, on your behalf. You see, it seems when I talk about getting saved here, it seems that more than physical healing has come to this lady. Jesus says, your faith has made you well, in verse 48. That's actually the same word in Luke seven fifty, where Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. His command here to go in peace here, we said in Luke 7, it's not a feeling of peace. It's an objective state that you exist in when you come to Christ, that there's peace between you and God. And so Jesus has not only healed her physically, he has not only removed the social stigma of uncleanness, he has not only removed the pain of suffering, but he has removed the enmity that existed between her and God. And so Jesus exercises his authority by dealing gently with the desperate. Even those who sneak up behind him because all they know is if I can just touch Jesus, he'll heal me. Secondly, Jesus wields his authority by bringing hope to the hopeless. Let's read the rest of the text there. While he was still speaking, some of the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. 
And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and, James, and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So it says there, while he was still speaking, while he's trying to make his point that, that this lady's faith has saved her, a person from Jairus' house comes with, with the last thing Jairus hoped to hear. No father should ever have to hear this. No, no mother should ever have to hear this. Your daughter is dead. And we're reminded of what, what misery sin has introduced into this world. I heard recently an excerpt from a, a, a book called A Lament for a Son. It's about a dad who lost his son. He wrote this, Gone from the face of the earth. I wait for a group of students to cross the street, and suddenly I think he is not there. I go to a ball game and find myself singling out the 25-year-olds, and none of them is he. In all the crowds and streets and rooms and churches and schools and libraries and gatherings of friends in our world, in the, in the mountains and the highways, I will not find him. Only absence, silence. Is there a call from Eric today? When did Eric say he would call? Now, only silence, absence, and silence. When we gather now, there's always someone missing. His absence as present as our presence, his silence as loud as our speech. Still five children, but one always gone. When we are all together, we are not all together. It is the neverness that is so painful. Never again to be here with us, never to travel with us, never to laugh with us, never to embrace us as he leaves for school, never to see his brothers and sisters marry. All the rest of our lives, we must live without him. I read that just to get a sense of the despair. And Jairus hears these words, your daughter is dead. And so I could imagine Jairus there so torn, amazed by what just happened, his his heart likely wants to rejoice with this woman who has been healed, but I could imagine, at least in my own heart, the question would be, couldn't you have waited for this lady, Jesus? Couldn't you have just given her? She, she's dealt with this for 12 years. You could have made it to my house first and dealt with this lady after the fact. In fact, the messengers, they understand the finality of what has happened here. They said, don't bother him anymore. Do not bother the teacher anymore. All hope is lost, and they know it. And so leave Jesus alone. Let him get back to what he was planning on doing today. He has places to go and people to see. Because he might have healed a sick person, but now she's dead. It's final. It's over. So Jesus then, who was kind to the outcast now demonstrates his kindness towards the ruler of the synagogue. He comforts Jairus, as we said, when he comforted the widow at Nain in a way that only Jesus could comfort someone. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And so we see this theme emerging in this passage. 
that of, a, that of faith, that of belief, that of a firm, confident, and trust in Jesus as the one who has all authority, including authority over uh, disease, authority over death. See, faith and believe are just different forms of the same word in the Greek. So we see this within even close proximity to one another, faith and belief. Jesus is calling the man, the Jairus, who just witnessed one miracle, to have a firm confidence that Jesus can show the same compassion and he can work the same power to raise his little girl from the dead. J.C. Ryle said this, These words, no doubt, were spoken with the immediate reference to the miracle our Lord was going to perform. But we need not doubt that they were also meant for the perpetual benefit of the Church of Christ. They are meant to reveal to us the grand secret of comfort in the hour of need. That secret is to exercise faith, to fall back on the thought of Christ's loving heart and mighty hand. In one word, to believe. So I think, I think Rao helps us here in reminding us, in, in essentially defining faith here, in falling back in the kindness and the compassion and the power and the authority of Jesus. And the reason I wanted to say that is because some have sort of twisted this passage and they want to make it seem like God wants to make you healthy. God wants to make you rich. God wants to give you everything you want right now. If you have the faith, he'll do it to you. I've shared with you counseling stories of one lady who was just shattered because as her child lay dead in the hospital, some heretic said, if you have enough faith, we can bring him back. What's she supposed to think when her child gets buried two days later? It's not what this passage is about. He makes a specific appeal to this man to believe that Jesus will raise his daughter. And from this, then we are challenged to believe uh, that Jesus will do for me exactly what he has promised to do for me. He has not promised me health and wealth and that everything I want I will get if I have enough faith. Instead, I'm reminded that Jesus will do all that he's actually promised us to do because he's compassionate and he's faithful and he is in control. He's even in control of whether this little uh, girl comes back to life. So I wonder this morning if your tendency is to fall back into the compassion and the control of Christ. The compassion and the control of God. I wonder if you will fight to believe that when your world falls apart. The seed... One of the seeds that Jesus talks about falls on the soil, and when trials come, it's snatched away. Fight to believe in this compassionate authority of Jesus when your whole world crumbles before you, when you hear the words you least wanted to hear. And the reason I say that is because everyone present in this narrative, they don't believe that. They don't, they don't hold to and understand and believe in the compassionate authority of Jesus. As Jesus approaches the house, Peter, John, and James are allowed in. As you likely know, these are sort of, they sort of form an inner ring of Jesus' disciples there. And he allows um, the mother and the father to come into the room as well. Outside, there's a crowd that has mocked Jesus. A crowd is gathered, and they are mourning in ancient Israel, it, it, it was even 
um, common to hire mourners to show up at your funeral, which I need to talk to Liz about that. Make sure that happens. Mourning was also a community project. So there's neighbors out mourning, weeping, crying. This would be contrary to what we are used to in sort of our American funerals where there's a hushed silence. This would be wailing, weeping, crying out. And to this crowd, Jesus says, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Now, Jesus isn't denying that she is currently dead. The New Testament often talks about death as sleep. Lazarus was asleep, even though he'd been dead for four days by the time Jesus got there. He's He's not denying that she's dead. He's claiming that this is not her permanent reality. This is is not the state that she will remain in. He will reverse the current state of death in which she exists as if she were merely asleep. And at this, the crowd stops mourning and they start laughing. This isn't the weeping that turns to joy that we really want to see, is it? They're mocking Jesus. They are laughing at Jesus. They know she is dead, so their laughter is mockery. Jesus, the teacher, the healer, you've bitten off more than you can chew this time. If she were merely sick, maybe you could have pulled it off. But she's dead now. And they laugh and they mock. But God is capable of surprising us. Sometimes our faith requires patience. Jairus here is called to believe. Do not fear, but, but believe. He's called to believe, even, even though his daughter's dead. He's, he, he doesn't understand all that Jesus is up to at this moment. Sometimes our faith requires patience as we think we know what Jesus should do, as we think we know the way forward, yet Christ has his will and his plan, even when we don't know what he's up to. So the doubters are outside. The ones who believe are inside. As Jesus takes the dead child by the hand and calls out, Child, arise. The text says her spirit returned to her and she got up at once. Now consider the authority it takes to speak to a dead child and at once she gets up. Jesus raises a child from the dead easier than I can wake my own child from a nap. How many of you go into your kid's bedroom in the morning and say, Child, arise, and they're up. This is Christ's authority on display, and he commands that she get something to eat, I think to demonstrate that this isn't some ghostly appearance of, of this dead girl. She physically, really, literally came back to life. Naturally, mom and dad are, are amazed. Again, that's, that's, that's mingled with fear, trembling before God. It's to, it's to experience a fear in light of that which you cannot explain. And Jesus, unlike he did with the, the, the woman there with the discharge, he, he had her explain what had happened. Jesus charges these to not speak to what had happened. In one sense, it'd be hard to hide. 
as the crowd is gathered out front and they know the girl died and then they'll see her in the neighborhood the next day. Perhaps this is even a judgment on the crowd, a judgment on the mockers not to speak to them of what happened while they were outside mocking. Clearly, though, for Jesus, this was an act of compassion. But we see that his, his miracles are meant to point to something greater. That's why he often tells people, do not speak of what just happened. This was an act of compassion, authority for Jesus, but physical healing then was not his primary mission. Physical healing was not his primary mission. Now, the miracles of Christ matter. We don't want to say, oh, well, they're, they're no big deal. No, they matter. They attested to his person, it says in the book of Acts. The miracles of Christ matter, but they're peripheral to his ultimate mission. He often tells then recipients of divine healing to remain quiet, knowing that a faith focused merely on the presence of miracles will not be a sustainable faith. So Jesus keeps reminding us in the gospel that that these healings, they point to a greater reality. They point not only to his person, but they point to a greater mission. Jesus has come to overthrow the threat and the reality of a greater enemy, death. Really, eternal death. He has come to overthrow eternal death. You see, our final hope this morning, again, as we sort of mocked the prosperity gospel earlier, but our final hope this morning is not that Jesus might make us better or that he will prolong our earthly lives. He might. This church has gone to prayer and pleaded with God when people have sicknesses that should kill them, and we've seen God spare people. He might do that. But our true hope is that that this physical healing here points us to this greater reality. The point is that Jesus conquers death for us by tasting death for us. Christ delivers us from the fear of death by taking the sting of death away through his own death and then his subsequent resurrection. He brings the hope of eternal life for his people who call on him in in saving faith. As Jesus turned mourning into joy in the right way for Jairus and his wife, As Jesus turned mourning into joy at this house, he will do this at a cosmic level one day with, again, the power of his voice. And we've seen the power of Christ's voice. In Luke 5, it brought all the fish into the net. We've seen that his voice heals. We've seen that his voice casts out demons. We've seen that his voice stills the storms. We've seen that his voice forgives sin. And we've seen that his voice gives life. And one day, one day, his voice will resurrect these old bodies and we will be in the presence of God forever. We will be embodied creatures and God will dwell in the midst of his people. He will say to his people, child, arise. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Brothers and sisters, Christ has overthrown death. He has removed the sting of death through his death and resurrection. And he will dwell with his people forever. And though we face trials, though we face illness, though we face physical death, we serve the one who has overthrown it. We serve the one who has overcome it. And we will be with the Lord. Do not fear. Only believe. Let's pray. Lord, you have done through your son Jesus what we could never do for ourselves. We rested under the penalty of eternal death. Lord, we face our own impending physical death, the sting of which we could not bear if it weren't for Christ. And so, Lord, may, may our hearts be drawn to worship him, to love him, to cherish him. May our hearts be drawn to trust Him, knowing that He has a compassion and authority that He wields for the good of His people. And may we be encouraged as we peek forward to the day that we will be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.